nowhere. Stop the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. They fought for the freedom of middle. The middle of the middle. The middle of the middle. The middle of the war! This is friggin' ridiculous! Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No! Not the middle seat! No reshoots are necessary for us to capture the vision in mind for the latest episode of the Middle Seats podcast, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. I'm the director in charge of this podcasting endeavor, Andrew Auger. Let's join my crewmates. I say crewmates in different contexts every single week. We live in a society that doesn't deserve his preciousness, Mr. Nate Lungarini. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Thanks, Drew. I've needed that. <laughs> I got to read this next part correctly because there's a lot of like, it's very punny. If we cut his parts from editing, there's a lot less stepping on points that make Nate and I go woof. Mr. Jake Hensler. I'm I'm triggered about that we live in a society part. I don't really care what you said to me afterward. <laughs> in either case, accurate. <laughs> See, I, yeah. I went with one of the news items this week for the intro because I feel like the movie we're talking about is too heavy to make jokes about. To make Judas and the Black Messiah, which is our movie tonight, funny. And I was like, nah, let's 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 not even go there. It's not. Yeah, it's not worth it. Anyway, the Middle East podcast, best city in the house for all things movie and entertainment. If you are joining us for the first time, our show is divided into three segments. We start the show with lobby talk where we go back and forth on a topic pitched by a member of the crew. Like we are waiting out in the lobby of a movie theater, getting snacks, chilling, waiting online for Avengers 23 or whatever movie we'll be seeing together in the future, and we talk for about 10 to 15 minutes on that. Then we go into our news segment. We've got three pieces of news this week, and then we go into our main review, which, as I just said, is of Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. How are we doing, gents? Everybody have a nice Valentine's Day weekend? Love is in the air. I'm, I'm like 99% sure I'm negative, but I technically was exposed to COVID on Wednesday at work, so I've been in my room doing nothing and seeing nobody. So... Did you buy yourself some chocolates there, Jake? Uh, my mom got me some chocolates, which was great. There you go. You That's still really got nice. a little Valentine's love in there. It was actually a funny story. I I completely jokingly uh, yelled out like, uh, yeah, on Valentine's Day, I was like, hey, where are where are our chocolates? Like it's Valentine's Day. Completely, completely kidding. I'm 25. Like I don't need chocolates for my mom anymore. And she started laughing and then walked down the stairs with a box of chocolates. And I was like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I, well, then don't you look like the jerk. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt bad. <laughs> I was like, wait, I was kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. I can I can feel Nate getting flustered. So I would love, get it? I would love to pitch it to him for our lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. All right. So like Drew, I was really struggling i guess to come up with a topical lobby talk for such a heavy movie because we usually like to keep the segment light and what i settled on was you know this is a movie about a public speaker civil rights activist and now we got movie speeches and we we can make that a little bit more a little bit more fun and a little bit more low key so i was just thinking Boys, what is your favorite movie speech? Could be a good guy, bad guy, monologue, just a good moment. Uh, lots of options. I'm sure we'll have lots of honorable mentions as well. I'm going to start off with the the king, if you will, of military speeches. And that is the ride to Sauron in Return of the King when Aragorn leads the troops for Frodo. 
going to Mordor. I love that scene. Every once in a while, I just go onto YouTube and I type that in and just get inspired and then go back mm-hmm. to editing. <laughs> that was one of the first ones that came to mind when you pitched this for me, so I approve. <laughs> Same. My my pick was actually going to be a Lord of the Rings speech, but I'm going to pivot now to give us some variety. Uh, but it wasn't actually that one. That went through my head, and also the Ride of the Rohirrim speech that uh, King Theoden mm. gives also came to my head. But it, Lord of the Rings is just, like, made for grand speeches. Complete with the music and everything, too. You just oh, yeah. can't top it. <laughs> There's epicness everywhere. Yeah, like, some series, like, build their entire series of movies to get to a scene like that, and Lord of the Rings has, like, four in a movie. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. It's too easy. Yeah, even in the in the, the two towers. I know it's a, it's kind of intercut with voiceovers and stuff, but the one that Sam gives. Oh, that's a good yeah, one. Yeah, that's an excellent, mm-hmm. excellent one. That was going to be my pick. That was the one I was referencing, yeah. You know, I, I really do like that Aragorn speech, but it's very much just like... Not a lot of poignancy to it. It's supposed to get you pumped up. Whereas that Sam speech is so very much like we need to hold on to hope. We need to hold on to the stories that they'll tell about us and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And it's a lot more relatable too, right? Right. Very impactful. But I'm going to pivot so I have something different. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, I had a couple. I Lord of the Rings came to mind. But like you, I wanted to do something uh, just in case somebody picked it, which they did. I wanted to go elsewhere. So I do like... There's some really good Fight Club speeches. I love the Robin Williams one in, in Goodwill Hunting toward the end. But I mean, how do I not go with Ezekiel 2517 in Pulp Fiction? I mean, come on. Yep. <laughs> I, on my notes, I have Pulp Fiction and then parentheses, Jake, close parentheses. Yeah. So I was like, all right, that's going to be off the board. That's fantastic. After like five minutes of research, I was like, oh, I know what I'm choosing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I every single line in that speech is iconic. It's unbelievable. And that's Tarantino at his best, too. Like, if there's one thing he's good at, it's engaging, riveting dialogue that you just love every syllable to. And that speech in particular. And yeah. as, Chef's as, kiss. as brilliantly <laughs> written and delivered as it is, he builds up to it, too. He's he's like, there's a passage I, you know, I got memorized. I'm going to rehearse it to you here. And he kind of just builds up to it. And then his delivery is just unbelievable. And then it's followed by murder, and it's just all together, it's perfect. Like, <laughs> And they even expand upon it within the movie. You know, he goes back to that speech and just says, it's a ice-cold thing I say to people before I kill them kind of thing. And now I'm really paying attention to what I've been saying. Yeah. It's awesome. The way that he starts, like, so buddy-buddy with them as well. Like, yeah. it, mm. it starts as small talk, and then it turns literally biblical by the end of it. It's like, <laughs> it's magnetic is the best way to say it. Like, Samuel Jackson... It probably was written directly for him, and you just feel every word reverberate because these are words that he is very comfortable with. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. it escalates quickly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so those were both on my short list. Uh, I'm going to go with this one. I'm going to go with Heath Ledger's series of speeches and monologues in The Dark Knight. Ooh. So this is going to count two to three different speeches he gives about the story of how he got his scars, and of course. Mm. That story shifts every time he tells it to a different character. I think he tells two and then starts to tell a third and then gets cut off, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But it's just such like uh, the first time it's riveting because you're like, oh, should I feel bad for this guy? I mean, he's a monster. And then the second time it's like, oh, no, he's he's doing this to mess with people. And it's such a brilliant device. And Ledger, again, his delivery is so good because you almost start thinking you're going to feel sympathetic for him. 
and starting to understand why he's a monster. And then you're like, wait a minute. No, f- this guy. He's like, psycho. <laughs> yeah. Definition. Oh, man. Yeah. I The first one in particular, I love. Like, I remember after that came out, I memorized that speech the amount of times that I rewatched it on YouTube. <laughs> uh, just, it's so good. Very similar to the Pulp Fiction one that you picked, Jake. It's no music or, in the case of The Dark Knight, very little music. Yeah. With that kind of like crescendo in the background. And you are fully focused on the dialogue and their actors' fantastic delivery of it. Yeah, just reeled right in. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I know we we chose all movies, but as I look to my right at the Breaking Bad poster in my room, my college Breaking Bad poster, there's one or two speeches in that one, too, if we're just going to hinder on this for a second. Walter White gives some great ones. I asked Nate before we started if these are specifically movies for that reason. The specific one I had written down is the I'm the one who knocks speech oh, from yeah. like season, I think it's from season four. And it is a chilling, chilling, chilling scene. Yeah, that was one I had written down. That's a good one. Well, if you guys are going to keep on bringing up your anti-hero or bad guy speeches, very, very chilling moments. <laughs> um, I'll pivot back to a, a happy one, if you will. And from an unexpected source, too. This speech is so iconic that SNL just recently kind of poked fun out of it. The critic's speech at the end of Ratatouille by Mm -hmm. Ego is one of the most uplifting monologues I've ever seen put to film because it just relates to everything. It's all just about how, like, art comes from anywhere and how one moment can really open up your eyes to a whole new perspective on life. And I love that speech, too. Yeah, that SNL skit was gross as hell, by the way. <laughs> we don't need to go there. But the fact that even how, what, a decade after that movie came out, it's still yeah, 15 topical years enough. Point, almost. Yeah. Yeah, if you guys are willing to be like, you know, like pastors for a sec, I have to repent my sins because I've still never seen Ratatouille. Yeah, that's a must. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of the big ones. How I'm are you missing. on the show if you haven't seen all the Pixar movies, Jake? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Unacceptable. I know. That's a big yeah. one. You know what, Nate? Let's hang up and start our own call. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a good segment for us. Middle seat Survivor. Jake is kicked off the island first. Yeah. Oh, I would suck at Survivor, though. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, a couple others I had written down, and then we got to move on. Uh, marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson's long monologue about how their marriage went long. Uh, even if you want to do the fight between the two of them, the lighthouse from last year where Willem Dafoe was just screaming about lobster. I was going to say that. I was going to bring that one up. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. That's such a good one. Um, I Jack Nicholson's uh, You Can't Handle the Truth is a pretty great one as well. Mm. That's a movie I haven't seen, actually. What? Drew, what are you doing on this podcast without having seen every movie in existence? I was going to say, Nate, Nate, your turn is coming, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any others, Nate? I'm good to call it there. That's a lot of movies. We've got to save more for the sequel. Yes, we do. I like it. All right. So this section of the Middle Seeds podcast, this monologue per se, it's not really a monologue, but I, I was trying to be clever. Let's just move on to news. And this just in, a news break special report. This is news. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So one of Hollywood's favorite things to do is make movies about things that are happening in current events, even if said things don't absolutely positively need a movie. Sometimes it feels like it's not going to work, and then sometimes it really does work. Like uh, The Social Network is a great example of that, where people scoffed at the idea of a Facebook movie. This one I'm pretty confident is not going to work. 
if you have not been following the news recently, at the beginning of this month slash late last month in January, there was a big spike in GameStop stock basically perpetrated by people online who banded together and decided to bump up the price and buy a lot of GameStop stock. That's the most simple Neanderthal brain way I can put it. Nate could give you the analytics, but nobody cares. I'm sorry, Nate. Anyway, what you need to know is that GameStop stock was up in the hundreds for a little bit. It's now back down to like $52, but it was a bit of an anomaly and a phenomenon and people were talking about it a lot. And uh, that was enough to put six different movies and television series in production on this one topic. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Since we last talked, there's been another one added. So let me just go through them real quick. The big, I think, headliners, a Netflix movie being written by Mark Boll, who wrote Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker, uh, starring Noah Centineo of uh, To All the Boys I Love Before and a bunch of other Netflix movies. They already have casts for this? (laughs) Uh, He he is attached. Yes. Oh, my God. So we've got that. Uh, MGM wants to make a movie based on the book proposal, The Anti-Social Network, from the writer of the book that eventually became The Social Network by David Fincher. So they are developing a movie based on a book that hasn't even been written yet. Uh, There's going to be a limited series called To the Moon. I don't know where that's going to be. The guy who created the Reddit forum, Wall Street Bets, he sold his life rights to Rat Pack Entertainment. So they're going to be working on something probably about (laughs) him, I guess. Uh, there's going to be a documentary what? by XTR and the Optimist funded partially by GoFundMe. So you want to talk about full circle, the internet giving people money to make a movie about their own contributions to the stock market. And then HBO is working on some kind of scripted movie that will probably be coming out by, by a time where nobody even remembers this or even cares. So obviously I'm, yeah. I'm not doing a good job of not being biased about what I think of this, but like we don't need to talk specifically about the GameStop anomaly as it is. We can talk about the idea of Hollywood adapting things just as they come out. Is there a grace period that needs to happen before they put these things into development to actually see how they play out? This goes for coronavirus movies, too, to be honest. Like, we're still in the middle of this. Uh, so, Jake, what are what are your thoughts about this entire situation? I'm not surprised that people already want to make a movie about it because it was the hottest thing on the internet at one point. But that's the thing. At one point, it's already kind of starting to, like, as the internet does, move on. The internet moves fast. Like, one, I don't know that we know what the ending of the story is. But two, if we do, it just like, all right, it was a big event that happened. Why do we need a movie or five about this? It's just, it was a big thing that happened on the internet. It sweeped the nation for a couple weeks. That's it. Like, make one when you know what the story is, if you have to. And... I think the only person who should be attached to this is Adam McKay, who, for those who don't know, he did the big short. I feel like he would be a good guy for this. And then other than that, like, everybody calm down. (laughs) The big short is this on a macro level because that that affected millions of people and was such a big deal. Mm -hmm. But it was also complicated in the same way. It didn't even affect that many people. Like, obviously, a lot of people jumped on the stock. But, like, did that many people really lose their money and stuff like that? Nate, as one of the investors – uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I may be on Reddit, but <laughs> don't pick on me too much here. <laughs> I, I first heard about this from you, so yeah. I, don't so, be surprised if there there's a character like that is modeled after you in this. Like, who do you want to play you? How about we'll ask that. Uh, myself, so I can get all the royalties. That sounds like a good bang to me. Um, <laughs> no, nobody can be Nate, but Nate. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm I'm in total agreement with with Jake on this one, and I'm pretty sure you too, Drew. Like this, 
does not need to be main. I love this story. I think this story is so cool that the internet basically rallied together to momentarily outbid a hedge fund and give them a run for their money. Whether or not there was any actual damage to that firm remains to be seen. It's still developing. The stock and the short that followed appears to be basically over. But, you know, Wall Street Bets is still going off on the front page every now and then saying, I got to hold my shares, blah, 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 blah. Like, I love the story on a macro meme level as like a fun distraction for the month of February and January here. But <laughs> this this is not movie material. <laughs> no. This is this isn't even like one special on CSI kind of <laughs> good. This is just a fun little blip that is going to fade away the same way like left shark memes and keyboard cat memes faded away to the internet. Yeah. A fun little thing that just pops up every now and then, but that's it. <laughs> well, that's the thing that gets me because I've been burned before thinking things were going to be stupid. And the movies end up being fantastic. Like Social Network obviously is the major, major example of a concept that really wasn't compelling or didn't seem like it had anything compelling. But they found an angle to it that made it compelling. The Lego movie is another example of something that just sounded awful, but they found an angle to make it interesting. But the thing is about those things is that those those concepts and those ideas at least are like a worldwide phenomenon or, or like things that – actually have some kind of footprint in the cultural zeitgeist. Like, Nate, you're absolutely right. This is going to be a blip. Like, what did you say? Did you compare it to Left Shark? Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> there were uh, some memes about it uh, because of the Super Bowl. But before that, yeah, oh, my God. The oh. vibes I'm getting are the movie with Tom Hanks. Remember the movie Sully that came out a few years ago? Yeah. Sully was a an amazing event where this guy, you know, we all know the story. He landed on the Hudson. He saved a bunch of people. It was amazing. But the movie was like, there was no conflict to it. Like, that happened, and then great. It didn't need to be a movie. You want to make, like, a, a short documentary series or something like that to to honor him or, like, you know, show how much of a hero he is, great. But as a, as a dramatic Oscar bait kind of movie, it just didn't work. And I'm kind of feeling like this is going to be similar. The, the one question I'll pose to you, Drew, is, like, how often does this happen where a whole bunch of different – Hollywood fish jump on a story to try to make the movie first and yeah. then all the other ones just kind of drop drop the project because they lost the race. It happens every once in a while, but not to this scale. You know what I mean? Like what will happen usually is a company will buy the rights to a story and then everybody else will be locked out. But since this is like a public thing, you know, there's no there's no there are a bunch of different specific rights being bought here, if that makes sense, like a book proposal being bought. One is just being based on the true story elements that we've learned through the news. Another is being specifically tailored for the guy who created this Reddit forum. So these are the different angles that are being approached at, which gives them an excuse to be like, oh, but this is how our version is going to be different. At the root, it's probably all going to be the same, like themes of David versus Goliath and, you know, capitalism and the economy and stuff like that. Like they're all going to say the same thing just with a different viewpoint. And instead of a Captain Sully leading the movie, you have <laughs> usernames Reddit? of Reddit Redditors. <laughs> right. <laughs> Deep F and value is the lead character. 
What's your Reddit name, by the way, so they can follow you on Reddit? Can you follow people on Reddit? You could, but that's not what you do. Okay, got <laughs> <Ever>. it. <laughs> I spent one day on Reddit and subsequently left in anger because I tried to post one of my articles for people to read. And they were like, you can't self-promote. And I was like, well, everybody does it here. You didn't post it anonymously, Drew, and that's your that's your issue. Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm, I'm too afraid of Reddit. I'm afraid of, of the holes that people go down, and I know it'll happen to me. You're you're intimidated by Reddit. You and I, I are am, Twitter boys. We're Twitter boys. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uncultured swine. What? Who said that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard that. Uh, that's GameStop. Uh, let's move on to from a terrible idea to a possible terrible person. Uh, let's talk about Gina Carano. Uh, Ooh, coming out hot. That was mean. Remember we went all wholesome last time? Uh, I, I'm, this is going to be the opposite. It's, uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a dark, edgy movie for a dark, edgy podcast. Yes. If you don't know who Gina Carano is, uh, she is a former MMA fighter uh, who transitioned into being an actress. Fast and Furious 6, Deadpool, her biggest thing, and the thing that's relevant to this conversation is she played Cara Dune on two seasons of The Mandalorian. The MMA part of it is relevant because... I'm hoping the reason that she posts some of the stuff she posts is because she got hit in the head too many times because she is very much known for some really hateful things that she says online. So just going through, I made a big list of them uh, because they're very easy to find. Uh, She mocked Black Lives Matter in August 2020. She changed her bio on Twitter to have transphobic stuff in it, even though Pedro Pascal, her co-star in The Mandalorian's like sister, I believe is transgender. She made fun of voter fraud. She basically said that COVID's a hoax at points. She said a lot of things. Um, And this past week was ostensibly the final straw because she shared an Instagram post that compared hating someone for their political views to the persecution of Jewish people of Germany during the Holocaust, uh, which is – if you're ever thinking about posting something about the Holocaust, unless it's on like Holocaust Remembrance Day, I, I would just leave it in the drafts. Or just delete it and delete your account. Mm. But the hashtag fire Gina Carano started to trend on Twitter and Disney finally pulled the plug. She will not be invited back from the Mandalorian. So we could talk about Gina Carano as a person herself. But I think, Nate, if we're going to talk general discussion, like there's obviously there's the talk of cancel culture and did Disney wait too long to pull the the trigger on this? Why now? Was it just because of the pressure of the hashtag? There's a lot of different points to it, um, but do you think you're going to be seeing studios having more of a like a no tolerance policy for this kind of stuff going forward? Or do you think it's going to be a case by case thing? Oh, hard to say. We we live in a world where a former president of the United States is banned from Twitter. Oh, I love that you said former. It feels so good to hear that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's a touchy subject. Conservative <laughs> social media is going off about how this is a violation of free speech and Hollywood's being like elitist and totally hypocritical because left-wing Hollywood uh, actors and actresses and studios are having lots of hateful rhetoric too, but they don't get punished for it the same way. At the end of the day, it's, it's a lot of noise. And just remember to take a step back and the world does not revolve around social media. Um, and I think that'll do you some good as a as a listener here um but yeah this is another example of cancel culture quote-unquote getting someone i think you can definitely make the case that this actress deserved it i think that you can definitely make the case that disney made the right call by letting her go 
because she seemed problematic to both Disney's brand um, and everything that it wants to associate with. And at the end of the day, they are a private company. They get to do however they want to conduct their business. You know, if you want to work with them, then they will figure out what they like and what they don't like. Right. They did the same thing with James Gunn a couple couple years back too. Remember, he was fired yeah, for bad true. tweets. And his career is not over. He had to come out and apologize for that. And his tweets weren't as racially charged. But it's a situation that's happened before, I think, is going to continue to happen. And I'm at the end of the day, I'm just hoping that people working in this business are just more careful about what they tweet. Yeah, I mean, if they if they even care or not, you know what I mean? That's the thing. And that seemed to be yeah. people are going to argue that her freedom of speech rights are being violated. But Disney, all things considered, were pretty patient with her, given that this is not the like the James Gunn one was a first offense and it was from years ago. This is recent history and a different climate than even the James Gunn tweet was from like 2013. And when is enough enough? Like how many how many strikes do you get before you've gotten too many? <laughs> like Yeah. Here's the thing for me, right? So ever since the internet came around, our parents told us, be careful what you post on the internet, right? If you post something bad, you can get in trouble. And a company can see what you post and decide, wow, this is not at all what we identify with as a company. And we don't want people thinking this employee represents us. This is not the message we want to get across. And especially if this person is going to be a major face in a TV show like a franchise, like The Mandalorian. That can be problematic for them. So the Gina Carano thing occurs to me this way, right? We all watch The Office and laugh at how outlandish Michael Scott is, right? With the things he says, the things he does. Because, yeah, he's funny. But it also, it couldn't happen. That type of employee would be fired like 90% of the time over the things he says and does. Everybody knows this. So that's partly why The Office, it's, it's funny. It's ridiculous. But in the real world, if you say horrid and deeply insensitive things, there's going to be consequences. That's just how it works. Especially now, yeah. Yeah, like I can't walk into work tomorrow and say something insensitive or like racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, which was her last one. If my boss fires me, I can't accuse her of canceling me or taking away my First Amendment right. Like it just doesn't work like that. So this whole like, oh, Gino Carano is getting canceled. Like, no, she she said something really, really bad, a bunch of things that were really bad. And this is how the, the world works. You can't just get away with saying whatever you want and walk away scot-free. It's a classic case of Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. Yes. You know, absolutely. You, yeah. That that's what it is at the end of the day. And I don't want to paint the picture of Gina Carrero being a 100% bad person. I think she was at a charity event when she heard this news the same time that everyone else did. <laughs> that's funny. A lot of her other tweets can be looked at um, as empowering. Like she had a lot of just like gung-ho stuff because she's an MMA fighter. She's into that sort of thing. You know, a person never is completely bad here, but you are measured by all your attributes. And Disney looked at this and said, yeah, this is not worth our time. Yeah. Bye. And that's their right to do that. That's any company's right to do that. And same thing happens here. You know, I, I'm going to close with a relevant story that kind of goes off of what Jake was talking about. We've been taught by everybody from our parents to our educators to just watch what you say and just understand that there are consequences to what you say. And this was like a small lesson I learned early in like seventh or eighth grade. I posted this photo of, at a Yankee game 
uh, on Facebook. And I remember I thought I was being funny. So I like there was a photo of uh, with a with a U.S. soldier in it or something. And I tagged it like dude from war. And I thought it was the funniest thing ever. It's like seventh grade. My mom, she shut that shit down immediately because she knows <laughs> what the repercussions would be if somebody 10 years from now even saw that. Just because you're famous doesn't mean you're immune to that kind of you don't get to be rude. You don't get to be hateful just because you make six figures and you're in Star Wars. You still have to be a decent person. Right. I'm glad that there is some kind of precedent and some kind of example being set here. You can still be punished and you won't necessarily get what you want. I can't wait for Deadpool 3 to make fun of this whole thing. I can't wait. <laughs> I they, they might want to be careful. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think they'll avoid it, but... Because she, she wasn't in the second one anyway, so they could, they could get away with it. But I we'll see. Yeah, didn't she die? Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so we were just talking about people complaining on the internet and being punished for it. Uh, speaking of people complaining on the internet and getting exactly what they want, uh, let's talk about the Snyder Cut and the new trailer for the Snyder Cut. I had a dream. I think there's an attack coming. This one will fall. I'm building an alliance to defend ourselves. If you can't bring down the charging bull and don't wave the red cape at it. They said the age of heroes would never come again. It will. It has to. We live in a society. Isn't that right? Batman. So the Snyder Cut, a.k.a. Justice League, the Zack Snyder's Justice League or whatever it's called, is directed by Zack Snyder. Uh, if you're feeling a bit of deja vu, it's because we reviewed this movie or a version of this movie or the bare bones of this movie or part of this movie, whatever you want to say. Back in 2017 when we were a, uh, a bunch of wee young lads, a wee young podcast that movie was co-directed by Joss Whedon. We all thought it was pretty mediocre. We gave it two wooden seats and a damp lawn chair. I, I won't put it on who gave it a wooden seat and who gave it damp lawn I'll chair. I'll give you one guess. <laughs> guys were stupid enough to give it a positive rating. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, but the consensus was overall that not the worst thing in the world, but pretty mediocre. Uh, ever since that movie came out, Zack Snyder, who had to leave the project under tragic circumstances has basically been saying, oh, my original vision would have been amazing. You guys have not even seen what my original vision would have looked like. <sighs> and the Snyder Cut concept was born. The hashtag formalized by the actors who were tweeting out released the Snyder Cut, like Ben Affleck got behind it publicly. Gal Gadot got behind it publicly. And Warner Brothers, looking for something to sell HBO Max, decided to make what ostensibly was a fan theory that this cut existed into a reality. So on March 18th, the Snyder cut, the four hour version of Zack Snyder's superhero blockbuster that came out a couple of years ago was being released. It cost $70 million for them to complete the visual effects score and editing. They had to shoot new material for the film in October. They added Darkseid, who was one of the big, big DC villains. He was just hinted at in the original version. Jared Leto is back as the Joker is another big thing. And there's a lot of debate of whether this actually was ready to go pre-pandemic or if the pandemic allowed this to happen. That That's just one element of this whole thing. And 
I can't believe we're talking about a Justice League movie again from Zack Snyder <laughs> this far after we reviewed the original, but it's coming. I just in a want month. it to go away. It's coming in a month, Jake. So uh, I I can't wait because I want this little internet blip in history to just move on. I, it's not. I can't wait for this movie so I can watch it. I can't wait for the internet to watch it and just move on with our lives. I'm so sick of this movie already. It's not even out yet. <laughs> to rebuttal that a little bit, just get the conversation going. I I feel like the people that have been asking for it for so long have been on this train for so long that they're not going to be able to shut up about it when it comes out. So I don't know if that's going to happen, buddy. Oh, my God. I'm so sick of this movie. This is where it pays to be on Reddit instead of Twitter because (laughs) I can avoid the stories I don't want to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) I just – I don't understand – what anybody is so excited about. Why are we getting so hyped over the man that did Batman vs. Superman? That was his last legitimate directed movie. If you don't count Justice League because Joss Whedon had a hand in it, his last legitimate movie was Batman vs. Superman, which was bad. Before that, Man of Steel, which was, if you're in a good mood, it's pretty good. If you're really looking at it with a critical eye, it's it's okay. Why is this man getting so much credit and so much creative control to put together a four-hour movie that looks like everything we've already seen. It's dark, it's heavy CGI, it's gloomy, it's grit. It I, I don't understand what the hype is. Why does he get four hours to do it? A lot of entertainment journalists were talking about the lead-up to the 2017 version of Justice League, even before Snyder left the project. And Snyder, at the Comic-Con presentation before he left the project, either in 2016 or 2017, talked a lot about how he wanted Justice League to be lighter than Batman v Superman, because Batman v Superman is known for being so grim. And Snyder apparently was trying to pitch the movie as a, you know, not not like a straight comedy, but a mix of drama and comedy. So for 2017's Justice League to get maligned for having comedy, and now Snyder is coming back into the fray and gets to course correct like this, this whole thing is so odd. And Nate... As a detractor of the DCEU in general, I mean... Yeah, he hates this stuff more than we do. <laughs> yeah, but I also think he's more I think he's more apathetic than you are to this concept. I'm so sick of these internet fanboys is really what it is. <laughs> You're angry. I'm indifferent. I think if I'm going to go in with at least a somewhat open mind, um, because I think we're all very down on this and righteously so, um, reports that I've seen is that when Whedon took over a lot of the movie was reshot. So we potentially could be seeing a lot more new content than we initially thought when this whole Snyder Cut business started um, all back, what, a year ago now? Yeah, yep, around this time last year, I think. So there's a there's a good chance that what we see in the movie is actually new to audiences, which could potentially be cool, he says questionably. Not really that cool. I think we're going to see realistically just a lot of different versions of takes you know like the fight when superman wakes up kind of thing maybe we're going to see a different version of that fight same location same end result if you will but it just will be a different version of that and with different shots and cool and you know what to fans of the dcu all the more power to you i'm going to watch this and then forget about it one more point before we could talk about what's specifically in the trailer, like the big things we saw. Obviously, Jared Leto is the big buzzy point. Ugh. Why are we so <laughs> excited to get him back? Yeah, he literally says a meme line. He gets to re- he gets to redo his performance too. I mean, he's just playing a different character. He's playing 
uh, it looks like a closer version of like Joaquin and Heath Ledger's performance of what he was in Suicide Squad, which like, okay. And he's well, going to show up for one scene and be done with it. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, tops two or three scenes, if that. Uh, the black suit Superman, the dark side stuff looks cool. So like, Nate, I, I agree with you that it's probably going to be a lot of different takes and stuff, but I wonder, that's fundamentally adding a whole other villain to the proceedings. And he, this is a major villain that they're adding. Yeah, this is this is Thanos, but for the DC. Yeah. What, I, I just can't believe how derailed this entire DCEU thing is. And the last point I wanted to make is kind of talk about, we've talked about this in the past with the Sonic the Hedgehog thing, uh, where they redesigned the character for the better. This trend that the influence that the internet has right now, where they can say that they want something done so often, that studios will just do it. And, I, and I'm glad that they're listening to fans and stuff like that, but also at the same time, yeah, Do we really need a four-hour redo? No, we probably didn't, and those fans probably would have gotten over it eventually. But now we're feeding into them, so now. Oh, remember how there were the, there was the chatters that David Ayer was going to redo Suicide Squad? Like, are we just going to redo every bad movie? Like, that is a waste of time if we're really talking about pushing forward towards original content. There was a legitimate petition to have them remove The Last Jedi from the Star Wars canon and have it remade. <laughs> are you guys oh, serious? Lordy. Like, <laughs> Same thing with, like, for another HBO thing, like Game of Thrones Season 8 getting remade or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that people one too. that, mm. too. My God. Yeah, so if cancel culture can get people fired, what do you call this phenomenon? <laughs> like, Stupid. Reincarnation culture. <laughs> Resurrection <don't> <laughs> culture. It, no matter how you slice it, the internet is a f- force. And right. I don't think it we really can is. get much past that. And here, here's the thing about all this. I'm I'm open to be surprised, right? If if they actually do somehow stitch together a good four hour long cut of Justice League under Snyder, cool. Okay, then we have a then we have a different version of a movie that ended up being good. Okay, but I'm just so sick of these fanboys. It really the main thing. Like if it's good, great. But stop put stop shoving this down our throats. It's like the Taylor Swift stuff. Like leave us alone. Hey hey oh my hey God. hey hey enough of that. Enough of that. They're, they're too. They're too much. Also, same with the the angry Star Wars people. You're too much. You're all too all right. much. We're moving on before this gets contentious, pal. But, I'm open to it. Let's go. <laughs> uh, Good lord. The phrase that I think would actually fit all of this is mob influence, where it's just like these masses are just so loud. And I mean, you're correct about that, Jake. Where they're so loud that the studios are hearing them, and that's I, great, I guess, but not not always for better. So Snyder cut. March 18th on HBO Max, four hours long. Uh, the day before, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier premieres on Disney+, Plus. so a little DC Marvel battle. So that'll do it for news. Let's move into our feature review of something that is on HBO Max right now, Judas and the Black Messiah. Repeat after me. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer. The Black Badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. Oh, 
Judas and the Black Messiah, as I said, is available on HBO Max right now and in theaters as we speak. It is directed by Shaka King. It was technically a 2021 release, but because of the pushed back uh, window of when things could be eligible for Oscars, it is eligible for 2020 Oscars, which we'll hopefully be learning about shortly. It's based on a true story. Uh, It tells the story of Wild Bill O'Neill, who was a criminal. He's played by Lakeith Stanfield. He was a criminal, and he is arrested and basically made by FBI agent Roy Mitchell. He's basically blackmailed um, into joining the Black Panther Party of Chicago. Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons, and the head of that Black Panther Party is Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, um, who is best known, of course, for his role in Get Out. He's been in a lot of things, an episode of Black Mirror, Widows, Lakeith Stanfield, also of Get Out fame. These, these are two of the biggest up-and-coming actors out there. And a nice, based-on-a-true-story activism movie. It's a big drama. It's got thriller elements to it. It's got a lot of civil rights subtext to it. Bring a lot of emotions out of people. It's being critically acclaimed. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of weeks ago. So this is a little heavier than our usual brand of movie, like... Guys, we were talking about possibly reviewing Tom and Jerry next time out. Like, that, <laughs> this is usually not in our wheelhouse. Just a little different. But this will be a good discussion, I think, because there is a lot of interesting, meaty stuff to talk about with Judas and the Black Messiah. And I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Uh, let's start with Nate. What did you think of this one? Yeah, this was a story I was unfamiliar with. Uh, so... The names of Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, those were those were new to me. And seeing these characters on the screen was definitely eye opening. Um, the movie is very good. The movie is incredibly topical, especially after the summer that we that we all had. And I think it just does a damn good job showing this really troubled man have to navigate this very complex political situation and. I don't know. Is it a spoiler to start talking about the events of the movie yet? Can I get there if it already happened? Uh, it's see, it's that's a tough call for me because I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. And if people are going into the movie blind, then I, I wouldn't want to spoil anything personally. Okay, well, yeah, the the movie's called Judas and the Black Messiah, so you can get a little sense of where the story is going and the ultimate betrayal that happens here. But the lead up to get there and the the aftermath of it is a shocking story. And it's one of those moments where I'm just like, why didn't I learn this in school? <laughs> and and that kind of stuff is frustrating, especially when you really think about how much of the world still revolves like this. And it makes for a powerful piece. It really does. I very much enjoyed the movie. So, I mean, we've been seeing movies like this for years now, Jake. And it feels like Black stories being told by black artists have become more and more of a thing. Get Out, of course, is a great example. Selma, uh, Black Klansman's another one. Mm. There's a lot of them where it's just this very unique perspective and it's got this passion behind it. Where does this rank in terms of those kind of movies for you? What did you think overall? Uh, Damn, I'm getting put on the spot with movies I've missed. I didn't see Black Klansman yet either. Um, (gasps) I know, I know. That one's legitimately great. I love that movie. Yeah, I I remember Nate was high on it. That's one of my favorite spikes, yeah. Yeah, made your your list that year. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did love Selma. I thought Selma was great. Um, I thought this one was good. I thought it was a good story. There's parts of the – maybe it's the direction. I'm not not always clear on these aspects yet. 
there's something about it that didn't grip me all the way through, but it is a really good story. It's really engaging. I love the the moral conflict in Bill O'Neill's character. That was really one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Uh, and I thought I thought Kahlua was excellent. From the, the minute he takes the screen until the ending, commands the screen, and he's just awesome the entire time. Um, yeah, he's electrifying. I love Yeah, him. every time he's on screen, I'm just like, wow, this guy's crushing it. <laughs> um, I thought Lakeith was great also. I like Jesse Plemons a lot. Um, I thought the acting top to bottom was really good. And overall engaging story, but it didn't... It's got really, really good reviews with critics. I more just thought it was good to really good, not quite the great excellent that some of the critics are giving it. But I still enjoyed it quite a bit. And I'm, like Nate said, I'm surprised that I didn't know anything about this. Like, zero knowledge going in whatsoever. So that was also interesting. I'm glad that this is being told and stories like this are coming out and getting the light and getting A-list actors to it and all that kind of stuff. I think it's awesome. And I think... The big thing with a lot of these stories that is good for white folk like us, where obviously we don't know anything about this because our textbooks are too ashamed to say things like this and (laughs) detail stories like this. Like uh, Selma is a great example. Fruitvale Station is another one. And you just leave those movies and the really, really good ones. You're just genuinely really mad and upset when it's over, but like Mm -hmm. in a good way. Like the like the artistry on hand did this to you. The direction, the performances, the score, the storytelling, the writing all came together to make you genuinely mad that this is something that could actually happen in this country that we live in. Uh, I would say I am with the critics. I really, really, really love this movie. I thought this was a phenomenal biopic's not the right word because that would kind of imply that I think it follows Fred Hampton. He's actually definitely a supporting role in this, though he does get a lot of characterization. The movie is about Wild Bill, and Lakeith Stanfield mm-hmm. really anchors this thing with a very multifaceted performance. This is a very yeah. detailed and interesting and skillfully made movie about a very interesting aspect of this entire black struggle, which is the concept of how to go about activism. And the way that the Black Panthers go about it is so fascinating to me because it's something that I didn't know because, again, the way we're taught about the Black Panthers and the person I saw this with, my girlfriend, she came out and she was like, my understanding of what the Black Panthers were is so much different than what they actually were according to this movie because we think of violence when in reality it's all about the authority being threatened by the organization of the oppressed. It's these little revelations like that that this movie brought to my mind through character and through writing, I just I was genuinely touched by throughout. Yeah, and there really is something to be said about that. Our our government starting the you know, our own government starting the violence and, you know, trying to get threats under control before there are even threats really. There's a lot of a lot of stories coming out like that now. And we're starting to see a lot of it. Totally. And it's just more in the public view too, like especially Brianna Taylor's story, like that one rings through for the tail end of this movie, something fierce that just made me so angry from a, from a story perspective um, that you touched on there, Drew, I really like the fact that this movie was shown through um, Bill's eyes. I thought that was a really interesting character choice because it would be kind of easy to make this about Fred Hampton but they chose the the double agent and just kind of his internal struggle and basically how he's blackmailed 
into this horrible situation. That was that was something new. When a movie does something unique, that sticks out to me, and that's totally what sets this movie apart, I think, from other biopics of a similar theme. But the characterization is so not simple for any of these characters. Like, Lakeith Stanfield's character, in very specifically, it's very interesting how they characterize, it, characterize him because it's so much like, one, he's in this horrible situation, but two, if he really wanted to run, he could. He, I think he likes the idea of being smoothed up by the FBI a little bit. But he also likes mm-hmm. the idea of being an activist and working with the Black Panthers. He is such a contradiction all throughout, and I think that just makes for an interesting character. 100%. You can say that about the other characters in the movie, too. Jesse Plemons' character has a little bit of edge of that, although I did like that they do not really do much to make the FBI, even any of the characters in the FBI, feel sympathetic at all. And some might, some people might say it's a little two-dimensional to write like J. Edgar Hoover, played by Martin Sheen, in some pretty, pretty good makeup to kind of make him like a conniving, sniveling villain. It's like, okay, but like that's been happening with minority actors for so long in film that it's fine in this context because they are the villains of this story. They are the villains of history if we're going to look back at it, if we're looking at justice and what actually happened. This is something that I just kind of struggle with uh, for movies based on real stories is that when they tend to follow the events of real life, sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate well to your traditional three-act structure of a movie, you know? Like, real life doesn't have rising action, climax, and then a nice little bow-tie ending to a story. Right, like the GameStop thing. <laughs> like, <exactly. laughs> yeah. um, With all the movies of this genre, and I don't think this one's any different... The two-thirds mark of this movie slows down dramatically from where we've been, just because that's how real life happened. And that's probably my only critique of the movie, is that, like, there, there was just that little bit of downtime where I wasn't as entertained as I was throughout the rest of the, the film. But I don't really know how a non-fictional story gets around that, if it's just trying to follow the natural progression of history i'm, I'm kind of with you there nate but i think in in more instances than that one i felt it at that moment too like the like you said around the two-thirds mark but i think there was like a moment here a moment there a moment here a moment there where i was i wasn't quite gripped as much as other parts and i think when i wasn't i was really feeling it but when i was gripped i was like wow this is excellent this is really interesting i'm so engaged with this but it felt a little bit inconsistent for me but like you said that's that's how life works. It's just kind of unfortunate for the movie portraying it. Mm-hmm. I, I like see what you guys are saying. I think for me, it's kind of an opposite situation where it's actually, if I had a gripe and it's a minor one, it, it didn't detract from the movie for me, but we kind of rush developments at the beginning. So when we do slow down, I felt the impact of what was happening more because it made it very clear that these are the big singular moments of this entire story. And it added a little bit of brevity to those moments. It's interesting because mm, this sure. mo- this movie could work on a civil rights drama platform, but it's also a really good thriller too. And it's just a really well-executed like mole story. You know what I mean? Like those are always yeah. tough to pull off. Like The Departed is a great example of that, of a fictionalized one. It does such a really good job at heightening the tension for his situation at every point it can. For sure. And I, I think as, aside from Kalua's performance, that was the stuff that I really 
was sinking my teeth into. The the further he got into the situation, the more his moral compass, his moral code was kind of getting gray and getting more difficult. I was like, that is a fascinating character study to look at. That's the stuff I really was eating in. So I think we should transition to ratings here, and then we can kind of get into the one big thing that we've been dancing around. Uh, if you're just joining the Middle Seats podcast for the first time, we operate on a seat scale. If we love a movie, if we think it's fantastic, has little to no flaws, we give it a royal throne. If we think a movie is great but has some decent flaws, we give it a plush recliner. If we think a movie is good but has some glaring issues, we give it a wooden seat. Uh, the inverse of that, if a movie is bad but has some decent things in it, we give it a damp lawn chair. And then if a movie sucks, we give it a sleazy outhouse, uh, bag of popcorn, little moniker next to it. If we think the movie would be worth a theater experience. I saw it in theaters. I don't know what you guys – you guys obviously watched it at home, right? Yeah. I'm not I'm not supposed to leave the house anyway right now, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're quarantining. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, and I'm in the city. We don't have movie theaters yet. Yeah. That, that was a test. I'm your, I'm your CO officer uh, making sure that you're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, a, a car just pulled away from my house. OK, he hasn't left. We're good. <laughs> yeah, all right. Coast is clear. Uh, Nate, what would you give Judas and the Black Messiah? Yeah, uh, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I think it told a great undertold story through a very unique lens that you don't see in your traditional biopic, even of other civil rights movies um, that are tackling similar themes. So uh, it gets points for originality, gets points for great casting and great performances. And overall, just it was a good eye-opening experience. I'm going to go plush recliner on this one. Definitely worth your time, especially if you got HBO Max and you can you can see it at home. Um, in terms of bag of popcorn, I don't think you need to see this one in theaters, but it definitely couldn't hurt. There are some big moments in here, um, but a lot of softer moments too, which work well for both the couch and the theater. Um, but all in all, good movie. Definitely check it out. Yeah, pretty much ditto. I would say this is a, a definitely a, a plush recliner. Very good. Uh, I wouldn't say it was outstanding. I didn't end up loving it, but I do think it's very good. As a movie, very good. As a story, very good, very important. I think there's some great casting. And there's some really great writing in terms of, you know, not to repeat the moral the moral code stuff, but also the FBI kind of forcing him into it is not always easy to portray. And I think they really did a good job at showing the the difficulty of the situation and how both both sides in different ways contribute. I really liked all that. Um I personally think basically every movie is better in the theater, but this isn't like a, a outstanding visuals or anything like that. So you don't need to see it in theaters, but like Nate said, can't hurt. I'm pretty much in his boat. All right. So it's going to be the second straight episode where I'm just a tick higher, which is fine. I think that's pretty good actually because it allows for us to have a little bit more of a discussion instead of just agreeing the whole time. I'm going to give this a royal throne. I think it's worth it. it I just found it like astoundingly well executed. For what it could have been because we've seen a lot of these movies and they turn out to be wooden seats or plush recliners. And I was afraid that it was going to be that case where there was going to be let down even despite the talent involved. And luckily the talent lived up to it. Like uh, we've talked about Shaka King's contributions, how well directed this is, how steady of a hand he lends it. But Daniel Kalua and Lakeith Stanfield and Jesse Plemons and Dominique Fishback, who we haven't even mentioned, who does an f- extraordinary job as Hampton's uh, pregnant girlfriend. She does an excellent job as well. There's just a lot of talent from beginning to end. This is a very thoughtful movie, but it's it works on a visceral popcorn level as well if you're just looking for a thriller. 
with a little bit of punch at the end. I think the final 45 minutes for me were pretty much perfect. I wouldn't change a single thing about it. If I had any changes, I would maybe shift a few things around at the beginning, which we can go into in spoilers when we get there, but absolutely see this. I hope it gets nominated for Best Picture. I hope Kahlua gets nominated. I hope Stanfield's at least in the conversation. Best Actor is pretty competitive most years, uh, but I would like for him to be at least in the conversation for it. Thumbs up all all the way around. If you haven't seen the movie, tune out now because we are going to spoil the one big thing about it that we can't talk about. Uh, If you have seen Judas and the Black Messiah or just know history in general, Come with us into spoilers. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So, Nate, you kind of nailed it when you were talking about how the title is kind of a spoiler. Or or at least you, like, an implied spoiler. It's an allusion to a spoiler. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to call it a quote-unquote spoiler because the entire legacy behind Fred Hampton is the fact that he was assassinated. Uh, and while Bill has a big part to play in that, that moment still, even with me having an idea that that was coming, still made my blood boil. Like, just the oh execution God, yeah. of it, it was so startlingly impactful, I thought. Yeah, that whole raid on the house at the end is, it's just jaw-dropping. And the sad part is that we know this happened. We know this has happened before. And... It continues to happen. Like, Breonna Taylor was not even a year ago. And it was obviously not as targeted and political as this assassination was, but gives me the same anger. I think the movie's big moment is just seeing Bill's kind of reaction to the assassination, especially, like, the tape recording at the end there. That's a gut punch for sure, because this whole movie, we're we're trying to figure out who this character is. Uh, is he regretful of his situation? Is he just kind of going with the flow the entire course of the movie? He's always trying to get out, but never trying hard enough. And that's what makes him the Judas character. Like at the end of the day, he still committed the ultimate betrayal, is feeling bad about it worth his character and that's that's up to your own interpretation so like a question i would have for you and this is a simple yes or no would jesse Plemons' character really have pursued him that much if he skipped town i think the answer is no probably not so that makes it simple there where we're talking about motivation he likes having a skin in the game and i think they do yeah, a good job there's a, there's a couple shots of him like smiling when he gets away with lying right. you know like we definitely get that sense from him he's I won't, I won't go full sociopath, but he's got that little bit of tendency to him. And the whole movie are rooting for him to just kind of turn over a new leaf. And then he just, he doesn't do it. And it's heartbreaking. I don't think it villainizes him, but I don't think it's very sympathetic to him either. I think the only per- the only person in the movie that this, that is 100% sympathetic is Fred Hampton. And his girlfriend. Yes. Yes. And Dominique Fishback's character. Yes. And and the, when they released that, Fred was what twenty one when this all went down. Yep, I didn't realize how young he was. That was that's crazy. That's horrible. I mean, it's horrible in general, but to be such a young man and to have so much going for you and doing so much at a young age, like it's horrible. It's sickening how threatened the FBI and, and authority was by him at twenty one years old. Yeah, there are so many different ways that they put it that is so. 
odd to me. Like, obviously, they refer to him as a messiah. But then they don't see the implications of what assassinating him would do. Like, J. Edgar Hoover talks about how, like, okay, people are writing books in jail. They still have influence from jail. They don't think martyrdom immortalizes someone. It's just hateful. It, it, the logic mm. even of their hate doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think the movie is very pointed about that. Sure. Even in the end, they, you know, like toward the end credits kind of thing, they say Fred Hampton's son ended up being the next chairman, kind of like he was, right? Like sometimes if somebody is, is murdered so, so horribly, it ends up influencing people even more so. Like did, they didn't, I guess they didn't take that into account either. Like there's a lot of, at stake here and they just completely went full force with their, you know, hate mindset and that was it. And I think you can see the influence that Fred has based on what happens when he's not around. Like the movie is about Lakeith Stanfield's Wild Bill. But Fred is such a big part of it. His characterization comes through a lot of big flashy speeches and in a lot of quieter moments he has with Dominic Fishback's character. But his impact and what he is as a character, what he means to the movement, you can see when he's in prison. Because he's gone from the movie for like 25, 30 minutes. And the Black Panthers almost fall apart when he's gone. 100%, like, yeah. Ashton Sanders' character, I forget the character's name. Uh, Jimmy Palmer is the character's name. Played brilliantly by Sanders, who, of course, we know is one of the kids from Moonlight, one of the three main characters from that. He goes out and he starts a fight with cops and he gets shot up and killed. And then from that, it spirals into the police directly targeting their headquarters, them starting a shootout. Like this kind of stuff wouldn't happen if Fred was there. He was the broker of the peace. Yeah. He knew how to lead and not be a pacifist, but keep his people out of trouble and his absence leaves even more of an impact than his presence could. And I think that's a really smart decision in terms of the structure of the movie. And I, I like that they showed his character that way. He was very much, you know, unity. How much can we help each other? How much can we rise up if we band together? You know, like when they, in the beginning, when they walk into that bar and I forget the the name, but... The Crowns. The Crowns, yeah. They, they draw a gun on him and he's like, hey, we're not looking for any of this. We'll leave. Just, you know, note... I would like to have a conversation and, you know, we can do better if we work together instead of, you know, against each other. And I'm like, I like that this guy is all about that. What about when he goes into the the white trash meeting and basically connects with people literally standing in front of a Confederate flag by saying, like, listen, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. we're all oppressed in a different way. Well, that was wild. Uh, yeah. I, I know the Rainbow Coalition was a real thing, but I do want to, like, look into that. Like, I, I cannot imagine that happening in real life. But if this man did, then he did. And that's crazy. Right. It doesn't seem like it's a racial thing for them, though, right? I mean, like, it's more of a... Well, he connected to them on the on the financial level, you know? Like, exactly, yeah. Cops are treating everyone the same in their movie's eyes there. To kind of pivot back into, into the specifics of the movie, one shot that just I keep going back to in my head that I really, really liked was like the, the revolutionary speech inside the church. He's back from prison. And specifically, Bill's character looking through the crowd at the FBI agent, looking back at him yeah. and just that shot in the crowd. I love that. I It's such a weird one-off scene, but just the framing of that and the look on Bill's face as that's happening, 
that's really sticking with me a lot more um, than I would expect out of this movie. Uh, he has such a good, like, worried, stressed out face. It's so good. I know. He's a great actor in general, but he is probably, he might be a top five facial expression actor. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can feel deep in his core what he's feeling at every moment. And yeah, that scene, they played the hell out of it in the trailers for good reason. Because Kalua is killing it up on stage. Plevins is literally standing there clapping. And he is, he's drawing so much out of Stanfield. It, it's such a well-executed moment. I agree mm-hmm. completely. And that's like when he goes full Todd, too, with the punchable face. <laughs> you just want to, yeah. <laughs> Todd from Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah, that he's got a very, what, what's his nickname? Meth Demon. <laughs> it's pretty good. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Nate, I agree. I thought that was a very, a very powerful scene, but also shot, like you were saying. Just Lakeith to Plemons, Lakeith to Plemons, and... Without them even communicating, just looking at each other from across the room is already saying so much about the position they're both in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that too. They interact probably more than Lakeith and Daniel Kaluuya's characters do. Yeah, I think you're right. That's just a very fascinating relationship too because I think you can see in another world while Bill likes the idea of being an FBI stooge, being having a badge. He talks about at the beginning when they arrest him that the idea that a badge is scarier than a gun. He likes the idea of authority. He's been on the run. Clearly has been a criminal all of his life. Yeah. And even toward the end of the movie, he's still kind of hyping up that idea. Uh, There's that point in the bar right before he's told to poison uh, Fred. And he was just talking up to to the girl at the bar. And he just casually drops off the fact that he's working with the FBI because it's it's a sexy pickup line at the bar, you know? Yeah. So the whole way through, he definitely got a little bit of a power trip from it. Yeah. Really good cameo in that scene by Lil Rel Howery, by the way, making yeah. three different get out actors in this movie. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. Um, something interesting and just doing a little bit of background research. Uh, and you're absolutely right, because the whole idea of the FBI, you know, dangling in front of him like a piece of cheese, basically to a mouse uh, or if we're going to be even more apt, a rat. <laughs> Getting them to do his bidding. They, they made that a really effective dynamic through the movie. We find out, of course, that Wild Bill committed suicide the same night, although his wife apparently claimed it was accidental. Uh, he was hit and killed by a car. This is a lot that would have been to get into on the postscript. But he apparently was had been drinking the night the documentary came out, tried to jump out a window, was pulled back inside, and then was ran into traffic and was hit by a car. Um, so there's a little bit of mystery surrounding the circumstances of his death but i just found that like an interesting little point uh just casually going through wikipedia because i wanted to know so much more about this story that little anecdote that they put in at the end uh really fascinated me because that really tells me obviously that's sad and that's tragic but it tells me how bothered he really was by his actions and like you know the fbi threatened him like all right if you back out of this you're going to jail for six plus years for the crimes that we caught you doing so either you help us and make some money or you go to jail for this, you know, his actions just plagued him for so long until his tell-all came out and he just couldn't handle it anymore. Aside from the blackmailing, how despicable the the FBI actions are too. Like, hey, gas is popular now. You can own your own gas station. You'll be a business owner. Congrats. Like, that's basically like blood money. Like, he has to work in this gas station his entire life knowing that he got it by betraying, uh, you know, a great person who's trying to help people. Like, just rough stuff. I think the cut, and Nate kind of alluded to this, but the cut from the interview with Lakeith throughout the movie to the real guy at the end, 
super startling in a good way. Yeah. Showing the actual archival footage mm-hmm. of the interview was very effective because it gave you such a jolt like, oh, yeah, this is a real guy and his actions had major consequences for an entire movement. Mm-hmm. And then he kept back and kept doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his his phrase there, he'll let the documentary speak for him, almost gave me the sense like he was trying to suppress it and he just didn't want to think about what he had done. And I, I, that ended with him taking his own life, I guess. Like, it's a, yeah, it's a tragic story. Yeah, it's tragic for everybody, for sure. Yeah, I was going to say on many fronts. <laughs> So let's start to move into final thoughts here, I think. Uh, obviously, you guys can touch on whatever you need to in your wrap-up. Uh, Jake, final thoughts on Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, t- top to bottom, I think it was really good. was kind of hoping to be engaged more. Like, as good of a story as it was, I just felt like there were, I guess is on a director, just some slow parts that I felt myself starting to feel it. And it's not a long movie. I just started to feel a bit draggy at times. And that's, my, that's probably my biggest issue, honestly. Um, no real issues in the story. No issues in like the acting or anything like that. Um, and I hope we can get more, you know, untold tales like this with big name actors, you know, on big platforms like HBO Max and getting all kinds of traction on social media and Oscar buzz and stuff like that. This is the great time for it. So I would love to see more stuff like this, especially the such interesting stories too. It's not just activism. It's betrayal and rats and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of good elements here. So I'm hoping we get more of this. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that, Jake. This is a new type of story for me just because of how I was yeah. how I was brought up and the education that I got. And th- this is a good eye-opener to history, and there's a lot more where that came from, I'm sure. So I'm looking forward to more stuff like Black Klansmen and this movie and uh, whatever comes next. In terms of this film on its own, I think I'll just give one more kudos to all of the actors and actresses in there. I thought everyone did a fantastic job uh, with special shout outs to our stars. They did great, great work and really happy. I got to see this movie. Um, Yeah. I echo everything you guys have said. I'll even take it a step further. I think it is worthy. Like I said, of a best picture nomination. I hope people watch it because they do have the accessibility to it um, with the HBO max deal. But I hope that it gets that Oscar boost uh, and is applauded for what it's able to do with a story that on paper is already interesting but is made extra interesting by just the detailed and complex execution in terms of the writing of the actual story, in terms of the characters, in terms of everything you learn about this specific angle of the civil rights revolution at a time where we get so many stories about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., This isn't exactly an angle that we get a lot of, as Nate and Jake were saying, because it's so era-specific and so specific to the city of Chicago as well, yet it's such a microcosm for everything that happened at that time to these oppressed people. And I'm glad we're past that point, but really we're not. And Nate keeps bringing up Breonna Taylor, but there's so much resonance when you think about the connection between what happened then and what is still happening now. And as all these movies are, they're a call to action. Like, if you're not at least a little angry after watching this, you might need to reassess what you think about things because that's the purpose of art like this where it is trying to get you to wake up and realize what's going on around you. And I think this movie is incredibly effective in that way. And I think you need to watch it in terms of essential viewing, really, for anybody that's interested in kind of 
bettering themselves and knowing what happened in those turbulent times. 100%. It's called a justice. That'll do it for our review of Judas of the Black Messiah. Before we go, Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the internet? Alrighty, here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on all your podcast platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at The Middle Seats. And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. In our return, this is probably the quote-unquote smallest movie we've reviewed. But if you have not listened to our reviews of Wonder Woman 1984, Tenant, and Soul before this, please check those out. We are very proud of them because we put our name on them. Uh, Otherwise, we would have just thrown them out like trash. Uh, We don't know what we're reviewing next, but we will be back within the next few weeks. Uh, Until then, for Nate Lungarini and Jake Hensler, I'm Andrew Ogier. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.